Everybody needs encouragement. Everybody needs somebody to believe in them, to, to cheer them on, somebody to be there for them when life gets hard. And I do not know a message that is more encouraging than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord calls himself the God of all encouragement or comfort. The Holy Spirit's name, paraclete, means the comforter or the encourager. And so the encouraging good news of Jesus Christ flows out of who God is, the encourager. And often when we read in the New Testament the word comfort, it can also be translated as encouragement. And so 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort or encouragement, who comforts or encourages us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort and encourage those who are in any affliction with the comfort and encouragement with which we ourselves are comforted and encouraged by God. So one of the reasons God comforts and encourages us in our afflictions is so that we may be a comfort and encouragement to others. So God's comfort and encouragement is not merely supposed to saturate our hearts and stay there, but the encouragement we have received from Christ, God is saying, will hopefully flow out of us and onto one another. You know, life can be so hard at times, and Jesus wants his followers to encourage one another. God wants our gatherings to be an encouraging time for us. If you are a Christian, then God wants to work through you to give encouragement 
to other believers and to be encouraged by other believers. And so to encourage others means to build them up, to strengthen others, to comfort others, to cheer others on. That was my daughter's definition, which I like. We can encourage one another in all sorts of ways, right? Through, through a pep talk, through a compliment, through words that give strength to others, through an encouraging note or text, through a thoughtful gift, or also just through your physical presence with somebody. However we encourage one another, we know this, none of us is over-encouraged. <laughs> That's reality. None of us is over-encouraged. In fact, one of the reasons God designed us as Christians to share life together is so that we will strengthen and encourage and comfort one another. And encouraging Christians was a, a, a central part, a central focus of the Apostle Paul's ministry. As he was forming local churches, Paul wanted to infuse them with a culture of encouragement from the outset. And then Paul often visited those churches years later for the express purpose of encouraging them. And the reason why this ministry of encouragement was central to Paul's ministry is because the gospel of Jesus is so encouraging. And this morning we're going to look at a passage in the book of Acts that is, is loaded with gospel encouragement for us. And so if you have your Bible, please open with me to Acts chapter 20, verse 1. So the context here is that the Apostle Paul is wrapping up his dramatic two-year ministry in the the city of Ephesus. And uh, remember the great riot in Ephesus was just um, squashed by the town clerk. And so now Paul is getting ready to leave for Macedonia, which is the region where churches like Philippi and um, Berea, Thessalonica were. And so um, before we read this, let's, let's ask the Lord to, to help us. Lord, we, we just thank you, God, um, for being the encourager. We thank you, God, uh, that you're our heavenly Father, uh, that you're the God of all comfort. We thank you for rescuing us from despair and futility in our lives. We thank you for rescuing us for dark, from darkness and for calling us into your kingdom of light and hope and life and encouragement. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would please use your word today to encourage your people. And also use your gospel to effectively call to yourself those who are not yet your people. We just ask, Lord, you would help us focus now on your word, saturate in this gospel encouragement you have for us, and to exalt your name in our minds and hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, I'll read through Acts 21 to 16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. 
Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy. And the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Ossus, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Ossus, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail, or to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, inside your bulletin, uh, there should be an insert with a colorful map of Paul's third missionary journey. Looks like this. You guys see that? Some of you have that? Okay, sweet. So, in the uh, center of the map, is the pink region called Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. And in the southwest corner of Asia is the city of Ephesus. So everything we just read starts in Ephesus and includes all of Paul's travels west of Ephesus until he returns just south of Ephesus in Miletus. Okay. Now, when I first read today's passage, I didn't think to myself, oh, this passage just oozes with encouragement. Um, actually, there's often a lot of humor associated with this passage normally about Eutychus, right? About the dangers of sleeping during a sermon um, or the dangers of preaching too long or the danger of preaching at nighttime. But, but as I looked at this passage more closely and read some commentaries about it, I discovered that the passage is really about encouragement. And this passage shows us seven ways that encouragement is central to the message and mission of Jesus. Okay, first, let's begin by looking at the incident described in the middle of the passage because it most vividly displays the encouragement we have in the gospel. So verses 8 to 12 tell us that Eutychus was a young man, probably between 8 and 14 years old. And it was nighttime, and the upper room where these Christians were meeting had lamps that both lit up the room and warmed up the room. And as Paul taught into the night, Eutychus was, was seated next to the window, which was probably just a big hole in the wall. And Eutychus eventually fell into a deep sleep. He lost his balance. 
He fell out of the window, dropped three stories, hit the ground below, and he died immediately. And everybody rushed down to see if Eutychus was okay, only to find that he was already dead. And it's worth noting here that the person writing this account was Luke, who was not only an eyewitness to this, but he was a doctor. Okay, he was a physician. And he writes here that Eutychus was definitely dead. But then Paul was led by God to do something similar to what some of the Old Testament prophets did and what Jesus did. He, Paul bent down, he took Eutychus into his arms, and he brought Eutychus back to life by the power of God. And then Paul told everybody, don't be alarmed for his life is in him. So note, note that he didn't say uh, that Eutychus did not die because the boy's death had already been established. Paul rather was telling the crowd, don't be alarmed because the boy's back from the dead. And then verse 12 says that Eutychus, uh, they, they took Eutychus away alive and they were not a little comforted or encouraged. Again, comfort and encourage, same word. So in other words, the resurrection power of Jesus brought the boy back from the dead and his family and friends were extremely encouraged. Extremely encouraged. Eutychus's accident is an important reminder that resurrection from the dead is central to the good news of Jesus Christ. In Eutychus's death and resurrection, we see a picture of Jesus's death and resurrection for us. When, when Jesus died, though, he was bearing our sin. He was being punished for our sin by fully receiving God's wrath toward our sin. And when Jesus died on the cross, um, he too was pronounced dead by his executioners. And after three days in the grave, though, Jesus rose from the dead, and, and he, he rose just like he said he would, proving that he was God, proving that he was righteous and not sinful, like many people had told him he was, and proving that all who trust in him have eternal victory over Satan's sin and hell and death. And so when we read about Eutychus' death and resurrection here, we see a very encouraging picture of what Jesus did for us. But Eutychus' death and resurrection, uh, it's, it's more than a picture, it's also a promise. It's a promise to every person who unites him or herself to Jesus by putting his or her faith in Jesus. Everyone who trusts in Jesus will one day be resurrected in glory by our resurrected Savior. And, and nobody who trusts in Jesus will experience spiritual death after their physical death. That is encouraging good news. Do you hear that? There were three funerals yesterday in our town. This is a message people need to hear, that everybody who trusts in Jesus will immediately, when their life ends on earth, go to be with Christ and experience an abundance of energizing, everlasting, never-ending spiritual life with Christ. That's encouraging. <laughs> And this message probably sounds too good to be true by many people. But to those of us who are resting our entire existence on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe Jesus when he says, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, Jesus doesn't allow us to stay on the fence. He asks you today, do you believe this? And this promise from Jesus to us, what it means is that our present afflictions, our present tragedies, our present sufferings, they're temporary, okay? So in Christ, because of Christ, our sufferings are eternally powerless over us now. So Christians, God wants you to know that today, whatever trouble you are going through, you're gonna get through it because God's gonna help you through it. God's gonna give you strength and grace to make it through today. And he says that his mercies are new every morning. So tomorrow you have future grace waiting for you that God has not yet poured out to you. And the day after that, there's more. And new grace after that. And the day after that, there's more. And it goes on forever into eternity because God has eternal reserves of grace. He doesn't run out. That's encouraging news for us. And after we've suffered a little while, Jesus promises that he's going to restore us and our loved ones in Christ with the fullness and by the fullness of the resurrection power of God. Now many of us in here have not received different types of healings that we have asked for, but what God wants you to know today is that healing is coming, Christian. Okay? Many of us have not been spared from terrible tragedies and accidents. But Jesus wants you to know that perfect restoration is coming for those of you in him. And thankfully, according to the will of God and according to the power of God, the Holy Spirit, who is our great encourager and comforter, supernatural restoration starts now, okay? What that means is that God graciously begins to heal us now. God begins to use our pain for good now. Yes, God's kingdom is coming, but it's also already here. That's why the kingdom is called already but not yet. And so even in the midst of our trials, God gives us right now sweet foretastes of the sweet eternal life that is coming. This is the encouraging news of what God the, the Son, Jesus Christ, has done for, for us through his life, death, and resurrection. This is the encouraging news that Jesus told us to tell the world. And so if you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus, then believe the gospel, believe the Lord today. Trust in him and be saved. <laughs> what, what more encouraging news is there that, that God loves you and wants to eternally occur, encourage you? That God wants a, eternal encouragement for you and that's only possible through God, Jesus Christ. So gospel encouragement, if we, if we use that term today, is the encouragement that is rooted in the work of Christ and that flows out of the work of Christ 
onto us, which God wants also to flow out of us. And spirit-filled gospel encouragement is what filled the early church with zeal for spreading the, the, the message of the hope of Jesus Christ and which filled the church with a zeal to follow Jesus together. And so we see in today's passage how Eutychus' death and resurrection both depict an encouraging gospel picture and also an encouraging gospel promise to us from God. So let's move on now and look at the other six ways that God catalyzes his people through the encouragement of the good news of Jesus. The second thing we see in this passage is that Paul visited churches personally and wrote them letters to encourage them. Acts 20 verse 1 says that before Paul left Ephesus, he gathered the disciples, and what did he do? He encouraged them. Acts 20, the next verse, verse 2, says that when Paul traveled through the region of Macedonia and visited churches in Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, he gave them what? Much encouragement. You know, Paul would have saved a lot of time and energy had he not gone out of his way to revisit so many of the churches he had already started. And because most of those churches were in places where uh, it, they were already hostile towards Christianity, it was dangerous for Paul to return there. But Paul didn't let that stop him. To Paul, encouraging the church and its leaders was more valuable than preserving his own life. That's how important encouragement was to Paul. Churches needed the pastoral touch from Paul. They, they needed to know that they weren't alone in their hardships. They needed to hear about the amazing ways that God was working in other places from the lips of Paul. They, they needed to hear Paul say, you guys keep following Jesus. He's faithful, he's true. He is the way and the truth and the life. Keep it up. Don't stop meeting together. And even when Paul was unable to physically visit churches, he often wrote them letters of encouragement. Um, not that uh, his letters didn't sometimes include rebukes, but even then, his goal was to strengthen churches in the truth of God. And 13 of those letters make up half of the books of the New Testament in the Bible. Acts 20 verse 3 here says that Paul spent three months in Greece and it was likely during those three months that he wrote the letter to the Romans. Now can you imagine how different our Bible would be if God had not spurred on Paul to write letters of encouragement to the churches in Rome and Galatia and Thessalonica and Corinth and the rest of them? Think about that. But thank God he did do that because those letters are our New Testament. And they're still a great encouragement to us today, 2,000 years later. So how can you and I encourage this church family the way that Paul encouraged those church families? Pastor Tony Merida answers this. Uh, by naming 10 things that serve to discourage 
our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to quickly share those, but I also added 10 opposite things that serve to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. So look at the other side of that insert I gave you in the bulletin, and you'll see a grid that says encouraging versus discouraging. And as I read through this list, just evaluate yourself. Ask the Lord to help you as you look at this list to identify areas that God wants to help you with so that you can be a greater encouragement to the other Christians here. So discouraging, being harsh toward or critical of one another versus encouraging, which is being gentle and complimentary of one another. Discouraging, being angry with one another versus being calm with one another. Discouraging, envying one another versus being happy for one another. Disrespecting one another versus respecting one another. Avoiding one another versus greeting one another. Being too busy for one another versus making time for one another. Puffing ourselves up in front of one another versus humbling ourselves before one another. Squeezing the life out of one another versus filling one another with life. Showing no patience with one another versus being patient with one another. Gossiping about one another versus speaking well of one another or not speaking at all. Now it's easy to write out a list of things that we should and shouldn't do. Maybe the more important question is, what will motivate you and me to want to encourage one another in this church family more and more? What's going to motivate that? Hopefully, we will be motivated to encourage one another because we have a genuine love for Christ and we really love his bride, his church. And a love like that for God and for his church flows from God. That's where it comes from. Hopefully, we will have God's heart for God and his church. Now, when we do discourage one another, this is where the gospel is encouraging news to us also because it does not condemn us. When we sin against one another, we should confess that sin to God and to anyone else that we need to and then repent, which again means to turn away from what we were doing and going the opposite direction and then thank Jesus for forgiving us and for purifying us from all unrighteousness and and for giving us another chance to be an encouragement to his people. Third, today's passage shows how encouraging it is to link arms and serve the Lord together. How encouraging it is to link arms and serve the Lord together. Acts 20 verse 4 lists the names of eight Christian men. And we know from the, I'm not going to, you could study it more, but we know from the names of these men, from where they were at, that they were from different social classes. Some of them were probably slaves. Some of them were probably rich aristocrats. And some of them, they were of different races, and they were from different towns. But they were united together as a band of brothers by their faith in Jesus. And so these men were probably representatives of the various churches that gave offerings to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And they were, these men were accompanying Paul as he made his way to Jerusalem. And, and as a big group of men, they could more safely transport the offering 
to Jerusalem than if Paul were doing it alone. Now, if you look at the front of your bulletin, it's kind of like a little treasure hunt today, huh? Um, If you look at the front of your bulletin, you'll see that serving together is one of the ways our church is committed to making disciples. And that's because something really special happens when God's people serve together in his name. You know, whenever you serve with other Christians um, on a mission trip or with vacation Bible school or at the parade or at No Tricks Just Treats or in the nursery or whatever, you know, it can feel good to serve others, but what's really cool is the bonding that happens between Christians. It's, it's extra special to build a camaraderie with the other people you're serving with. I remember the first year we did the No Tricks Just Treats event. It went off great, but what was really cool is collecting the 60 volunteers and taking a picture together because it was like, we did it, you guys. And God was glorified through this. That is so encouraging. And as many of you know uh, who have followed Jesus for a while, if you, really want, if, you're, if you really do want to build relationships in this church and with other Christians, then serve together and watch how God works. That's the reality. Serve. And if you want to see a list of all the ways that you can serve the church, just drop by the information center in the lobby, and we have a whole page in, in the membership packet of different ways that you can serve just here at, at Cedar Home. We also have a number of great uh, missions organizations in our community where you can plug in and, and use your gifts there too to encourage the body of Christ here in Stanwood. Okay, fourth, the gospel of Jesus encourages us by freeing us to worship God differently than Old Testament Judaism. Okay? The gospel of Jesus encourages us by freeing us to worship God differently than Old Testament Judaism. One thing you'll notice in verses seven to eight is that the Christians in Troas routinely gathered every Sunday to worship Jesus together. Do you guys know that, that there is a historical reason why Christians meet on Sundays Right? It's the resurrection day of, of Christ. Now, what you see, what's interesting though is that these Christians didn't gather in the morning. They gathered, gathered in the evening. And probably that's because of the different jobs that the Jews and Gentiles had in that culture. Sunday evenings were the best time for all of them to get together. If you've ever planned a meeting, oh my goodness, trying to get 20 people together at the same time, very hard to do, but what tends to happen is like, okay, which time works for the majority of us? When can, will most of us be there together? Most likely it was in the evening on Sundays for this church in Troas. Now there's nothing, this is important to know, there's nothing in the Bible that says Christians must gather on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings. Now we're not gonna change our service. I don't have a plan for that. But I want you to think about this. I mean, listen, I'm a night person. I'd be happy to do it in the evening. But uh, think about it. If, if we were to say, hey, you guys, we're going to start having church on Sunday evening at 6 p.m., what would your heart reaction be to that? No, we can't do that. We've never done that before. Nobody does that. That's, that's wrong. That's irreligious. No, it's not. And you have no biblical warrant if the, if to feel that way, right? It might make you uncomfortable. But the reality is, you guys, that... The instructions were given in the New Testament 
simply tell us don't stop meeting together. That's what it says. We should frequently be rubbing shoulders together, frequently be meeting together for encouragement through fellowship and scripture and worship and prayer. Jesus gives us freedom to worship him when we want as a corporate body. Now another thing that goes along with this that's interesting in today's passage is that Paul chooses to participate in two of the three major Jewish feasts, right? And he came out of Judaism. And according to verse 6, he celebrates the Passover in Philippi. And according to verse 16, he is hoping to arrive in Jerusalem on time to celebrate Pentecost there. So Paul's celebration of these feasts is fascinating to me, considering that in his letter to Galatians, to the Galatians, he curses Christians who says that, we mu- who say that we must still celebrate the feasts. Look more closely, though, at what Paul is condemning, though, in Galatians was the idea that Christians have to celebrate the Jewish feasts. Okay? Even more so, he was condemning the idea that God's salvation can be achieved through faith in Christ plus through celebrating the feasts, which there were people te- teaching them that. But today, if Christians choose to celebrate some of those Jewish feasts, like sometimes you hear about a church having a Seder dinner, if, 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 if Christians choose to celebrate some of those holidays, to celebrate, Dylan and I were talking about this, like Jesus is our Passover lamb. That's awesome news. If, 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 if Christians choose to celebrate that, not for a salvific, a saving purpose, but to celebrate the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of those feasts, then more power to them. Okay? Paul wrote about this in Romans 14, 5 to 6, saying, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And R.C. Sproul writes, I have no quarrel with a person celebrating these feasts. Instead, I have a caution. My concern about some who celebrate these feasts is that while they profess their dependence on the finished work of Christ alone, some seem to believe that feast keeping somehow elevates their Christian walk. All of our subculture convictions within the church carry this danger. We want to be superior Christians who have glommed on to the secret way. Then we go out with all the zeal of an Amway salesman trying to get all our friends on board. Paul, he says, however, is far more easygoing. He described his Hebrew roots as dung. (laughs) What matters is that we know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Fifth, today's passage shows us that Christians love to gather together when it's encouraging to them. Christians love to gather when it's encouraging to them. According to verse 7, the Christians gathered on the first day of the week to worship the Lord in several ways by sharing a meal together, which almost certainly culminated in taking the Lord's Supper together, um, and by soaking in teaching from God's Word. That's what they were doing. And other New Testament passages indicate that the believers also prayed together and sang worship songs together. Meeting together was extremely encouraging for the first Christians because 
and we know this because it appears that they, they prioritize their schedules around doing so. If you just look at the book of Acts, in Ephesus, we read about Christians who gave up their afternoon siestas to join Paul in the lecture hall from 11, to 4, uh, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., the hottest part of the day, the most uncomfortable part of the day, and they were there. And here in Troas, we read that on this night, the Christians met together straight through the night. It says from sunset to sunrise. They, and they weren't worried about how much time it took, right? They, they, they were there to worship God and to encourage one another. And this is, this is very different from our Western mindset, in which we often expect all of our events to start on time, and then within the first 20 minutes, we're all checking our watches to see how much longer it's going to take, right? Listen, there are 168 hours in your week. And I hope that during the few hours that we're together on Sunday mornings and in our community groups, we would savor the gospel encouragement of those times rather than asking ourselves, how fast can I get out of here? Sixth, Paul is, is hurrying to Jerusalem to encourage poorer Christians with a financial gift. That's why he wants to hurry. He's collected an offering among the churches in Macedonia to help the believers in Jerusalem who were living in poverty. And the eight men uh, we read here joined Paul to deliver this offering to Jerusalem, not only to protect the offering with Paul, but also to come alongside the Jerusalem brothers and say, hey, we love you guys and we have your back. And this was a big deal in the first century when you have, I mean... <laughs> It's hard, it's hard to express how encouraging the, this was because it was, you have people of different social classes who did not normally interact with one another and different races that didn't normally interact with one another. And now in Christ, they're all one and they're saying, we love you guys and we have your back. That's so awesome. And, and one of the interesting things about this Macedonian offering was that according to Paul's other letters, the Macedonians didn't have much money either. And they were the ones who gave the offering. However, Paul said that he uses this word begging. He says they were begging him to give their money to their Jerusalem brothers. If you read 2 Corinthians 8, which Gary read a little bit of this morning. And so... What this tells us is that when spirit-filled Christians take care of one another, it is a blessing to both the givers and the recipients. When Jesus' words ring true here, for Christians, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, in addition to helping one another individually here, uh, the two primary ways our church body encourages poorer Christians in our community and, and, and globally uh, is through our monthly sunshine offering, which we take the first Sunday of the month normally, and through our missions budget in which we support missionaries around the world who are working some in, among uh, impoverished areas. Now, <clears throat> I th I'm including this as a side note. I just want to throw this out there. Recently, our, I found, talked to our missionaries, Erica and Michalisi, who work with um, the, the widows and orphans in uh, Swaziland, which is now called Eswatini. Anyways, they're returning. They're going back in a few weeks here to, to do what Paul was doing, to encourage 
the, the churches, to encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ over there. They're meet, I mean, you, some of you have seen my pictures from that, but they're meeting in broken down sheds, I mean, in the middle of the desert. And, and these are their churches. And um, anyways, I was just thinking, how do we live out this passage? Well, I, I, I thought I'd just mention this. If you feel led to donate seriously just a few dollars to them, if we were able to collect a little bit of an offering to give to them to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ in Swaziland, I know Erica and Michalisi would be thrilled to, to do that. Um, and um, anyways, there's no pressure, zero pressure. And, but if you're interested in doing that, you can talk to me after the service or just go online and you can give on our church website. But I was thinking, since there are missionaries, we could give them a little bit of an offering to take and deliver on behalf of our church to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ over there. Now seventh, and finally, we, uh, we should be greatly encouraged by the historical precision of Luke's travelogue in this passage. The historical precision of this passage. Well, you know, when you first read a passage like this, and I'm going through the Old Testament right now, and it's got a lot of long lists, people in places I don't know. And at first it looks boring. But actually, it is the seemingly pointless details like those that strengthen our trust in God's word. Okay? The author Luke, who wrote this book of Acts, was a physician. He was an eyewitness uh, to many of the events in Acts. If you look at uh, the beginning of Luke, which he, the Gospel of Luke, which he wrote, it, he was a research. I mean, he's researching. He's presenting essentially a research report for somebody. And he was very careful to write down specific factual details. So Luke was not trying to wow us with some of these lists. He's just writing down the facts. And so when you look at a map like this of the, of the first century Mediterranean world, and then when you look at the cities that we just were listed in the passage that we just read, um, it makes historical and geographical sense because they're simply sailing up and down the coast of the Aegean Sea. And that's historically verifiable. It's verifiable today. And, and the reason that these, these sorts of details are extremely encouraging to us is because they further reinforce the truth that the Bible is entirely true which our society needs to hear, which you need to hear and be encouraged about, and me too. And this is just some, I'm, I was, yeah, I, I, the historical trustworthiness of the New Testament and Old Testament is just something I'm fascinated with, personally. The more you dig in, the more that archaeology discovers, the more that we find, the more verified the New Testament is. Not that we have to be the ones who stand upon God's word and, and say, well, we'll see if this is true. We, we don't do that. But it's very exciting to come from a place where we're saying we believe God's word is true and everything is pointing out that it's true. <laughs> um, we can trust the word of God. The fall of man into sin, the ancient sacrificial systems of Judaism, the rise and fall of Judah into Israel, the virgin birth of Christ, the miracle-filled sinless life of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection from the dead, the ascension of Jesus into heaven were real events that happened in our human history. And that's the gospel events 
are rooted in historical fact, not fiction. So the faith that you have in Christ, in the living Jesus Christ who died and resurrected is grounded in historical truth. This is not a leap into the darkness. I hope this is true. You can be sure that it's true. And so I tell you this, be encouraged today because the Bible is God's word. Jesus is God. Jesus is the king. Jesus is compassionate and he is willing to save all who trust in him. His Holy Spirit is with his people. He's encouraging us, he's strengthening us, he's comforting us, he's working through us to comfort and encourage one another. And as we as individuals savor the, the, the encouragement that comes from God, this is our prayer and this is my prayer for our church family. May we open the floodgates of our hearts to encourage one another with gospel encouragement as we take care of one another and as we worship together and as we pray together, as we serve together and as we follow and trust Jesus together. Will you guys please stand with me as I close our time in prayer today? Dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just thank you for wanting good for us. <laughs> thank you for being our comforter and strength. Thank you for encouraging us by your spirit with all of these gospel encouragements. Lord, please fill us with your love, fill us with your truth, with your strength. Make us spirit-filled encouragers of one another. Make us builders and strengtheners of this church family. And with the Apostle Paul, we, we ask, may you, the God of endurance and encouragement, grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you for being here. If you're new here, we would love to meet with you out in the lobby and just say hi for a few minutes. Thanks. Have a great day, you guys.